0: Hey, y'all. I'm Jamil Smith, and this is Intersection. Hard to believe, but this is our last episode of 2015. We've had some amazing guests over the past six months, and they've talked about national politics, climate change, social justice, activism, and so much more. They've also told us powerful stories about their own identities, and that's what we want to revisit. For our last episode of the year, we pulled some of our favorite tape of our guests talking about how they identify in the world. That'll come in a bit, but first, given the time of year, I thought we should talk about Santa Claus. No, jolly old Santa in and of himself is not a ripe topic when it comes to identity and intersectionality, but we need to talk about his companion. In the Netherlands, Santa has a companion named Zwart Piet or Black Pete. The tradition is celebrated by the Dutch in the way some Americans still celebrate Halloween by wearing black face and big curly wigs and then acting like a fool. And heaven forbid you tell the Dutch this is racially offensive. Here to help me explain this ridiculous tradition is someone who has written extensively on the subject, Karen Atia, the Deputy Opinions Editor at The Washington Post in D.C. Hey, Karen. Hi. So tell us about Black Pete. What does he look like and where does the tradition come from?
1: Black Pete, or Zwarte Pete in, in um, Dutch, is basically... If we think of Santa Claus, uh, our version of Santa Claus, uh, Zwart Piet or Black Pete, is like Santa Claus's helper. So just imagine um, you have a bearded white bishop. Santa is Claus is a bishop. And his helpers are dressed in very bright, colorful clothing, um, reminiscent of the blackamoor tradition of clothing, and dark black faces. People dress up with red lips. And coarse curly Afro wigs, and very often bright gold jewelry. For many uh, of people in Curacao, and for many Dutch people that I interacted with, this was just how Zwart Pete was. It wasn't shocking to them, but for me, as an American, obviously with our traditions of uh, minstrelsy and Sambo, was very shocking. It was very shocking to see that uh, blackface, frankly, was being celebrated by everyone, in- including black people in, in Curacao.
0: You know the black faces, the curly-headed wigs, the red lips painted on. It sounds like you know they—they they just not really aware or just don't care about what the Sambo stereotype means here in America and potentially worldwide.
1: And this is the, the sort of interesting and perhaps difficult part of of addressing this this tradition. Many people will say, um, will give defenses of, of black peats. They'll say, well. You know, no, he's, he's not a black person. He's black because he fell down the chimney. So the blackness that you see on his skin is actually soot. But then, you know, when you ask, well, did he fall down the chimney and somehow come up with red lips and somehow come up with curly hair? And, uh, usually, you know, the conversation sort of, uh, goes downhill from there. But, um, you also have explanations or defenses rather of, well, you know this is not racist. This has nothing to do with black people. It's not racist because children love Zwarte Piet. Um, Zwarte Piet is a, a comical character. He's mischievous and he's um, he's acrobatic. So he often dances and does flips for the children. He's the one who gives the children um, candies and paper notes, which is like a ginger cookie. And so many Dutch people will say, "Well, how can it be racist if?" Children love him so much. Don't you want children to have fun? Don't you right. like children?
0: Right. So the fact that it was offensive to you meant nothing to them.
1: Right. I mean, especially as an outsider, you'll have people say, you know, well you're not Dutch, so you have no right to criticize our traditions. Just like say, well you have Thanksgiving, that's that's offensive to Indians. You have no right to to criticize us. But I would always point out, I mean, there are black people of color in Holland. Um, and in the Caribbean who are actively protesting this. Now, I was in Curacao for that year where it was, you know, a fairly large um, celebration. But in other islands such as um, St. Martin, I was told by folks that they did not accept this and that Black Pete was, you know, phased out in a lot of their celebrations. So I think to point back to, um, in my conversations with, with Dutch folks, to point back to the fact that, no, there are black people in the Netherlands who have been actively protesting this for years now. And increasingly, people are becoming more and more vocal against this tradition. And in fact, this year, um, in some of the protests, um, there's videos available of on one end, people of color protesting uh, Zwarte Piet and on the other end, White Dutch who are calling protesters monkeys and telling people to go back to their cages and yelling racial epithets. So, again, to say
0: (laughs) this is not racism,
1: this is not racism, you dumb monkey, is (laughs) is not uh, quite a convincing, you know, approach to the argument, you know.
0: Yeah, that's not not an unfamiliar argument here in the States either. I want to get to your argument against the, the tradition that you stated last year in Washington Post. What did you argue and how did people react to it?
1: I mean, basically, my argument is, or was at the time that we cannot look at Zwart Piet as just a character in a vacuum. I mean, Zwart Piet just simply can't be divorced from the fact that the Netherlands historically participated in the Atlantic slave trade. And so, this caricature of blackness, this kind of mockery of, of blackness as, as silly, as inhuman, is a global phenomenon. So, you see it in, of course, our version of Sambo, our minstrel shows in, in America, Gollywog in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, All of these uh, these characters, or even if you read um, Tintin, Hergé's Tintin in the Congo, and you see the same same caricature of blackness, the red lips, the super dark skin, and even as far as uh, the persona of sort of silly characters who don't quite get everything right, but yet they're lovable and infantile, quite childlike. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, my argument was just that this cannot be divorced from global anti-blackness and um, again um, to ignore or to say that this is just a dutch thing you don't understand this is just a dutch thing Um, i'm like no this is a part of a sad uh, western tradition of dehumanizing blackness for profit because we all know that's why pete makes a lot of money right
0: it is profitable like how how does it how is it monetized
1: Massive. Um, so, I mean, even even in the small island of Curacao, you'd go, you'd see Zwarte Piet candies and Zwarte Piet being used to advertise ice cream and Zwarte Piet dolls and figurines and costumes, of course, that you can buy. Um, in Amsterdam alone, I know the parades draw about two hundred and fifty thousand people every year. It's really a a huge, huge, huge part of the year for many Dutch people. So, I can understand in in many ways, you know how. Um, how deeply ingrained it is. But on the other hand, I mean, <laughs> the fact that, um, you know, I heard stories of, of black Dutch people and their children would go to school and the other, you know, white Dutch folks would, would call their children. Oh, hey, look at Zwarte Piet, look at Zwarte Piet or people calling me Zwarte Piet. It's, it's not just about the past, it's also about, you know, the fact that it has a lot to do with, um, I mean, just the whole controversy it has a lot to do with questions about identity in the Netherlands. And um, when people talk about, well, all Dutch people love Zwarte Piet, all Dutch people, um, it starts to give questions about, well, who counts as Dutch, you know, someone from Suriname, from Curacao. might have grown up, you know, in the Netherlands and, um, And they oppose this tradition. Are they not Dutch? You know?
0: Right. Especially, I feel like, in this moment of immigration in Europe, um, you're seeing, obviously, Syrian refugees being welcomed by a number of nations. But also, on the other hand, you have people like, you know, the German chancellor, Angela Merkel, saying that, you know, multiculturalism is, uh, is a farce, is a fantasy. And so, granted, that does mean something different in Germany than it means here in the United States. But, you know, the idea that, you know, people must learn the customs of a, you know, particular nation, must adopt those customs, must adopt the language in order to be welcomed in, you know, as full citizens. And even then are not technically full citizens. It just seems to me, you know, a bit of a colonial mindset at the the end of the day.
1: In Holland, there's a, there are two terms, there's, um, which sort of means kind of native born and a lot of people connote it to say white Dutch. And then you have which translates roughly to, you know, kind of foreign-born. foreign, foreign born. And so if you're visibly non-white, um, can you ever quite uh, be considered an Al- alcocton? The fact that there are these mm. divisions, right, even within the language, within the culture, just speaks to the difficulties that visible minorities have in really being accepted as Dutch. So, again, even with the controversies around Swartz Pete. When people, again, are talking about, you know, well, all Dutch say this. I think uh, there have been studies that have said, you know, 90% of Dutch say that uh, Pete is not racist. And it also raises questions about representation, right? I mean, there are very few visible minorities in media in Holland, and I've I've written a bit about that. And such, so I think also, you know, um, putting zwart Piet in the contemporary context of yes, of, of immigration, of identity, is very necessary. And again, even uh, the UN—I um, mean, it got so bad that even the UN had to be called in on the Netherlands to kind of read them.
0: What did the UN kind of tell
1: them about themselves?
0: What did the UN say?
1: Um, so the UN uh, actually this year in in August, the UN basically um, reviewed the zwart Piet tradition very specifically. And urged Hollanders, the Netherlands, to consider changing the tradition and to actively promote the elimination of the stereotypes. And uh, it was not received well. <laughs> I uh, remember when this investigation, when the committee was doing their their investigation, and um, there were calls from Dutch people to withdraw from the UN rather than get rid of black peat. Um, there were actually the committee received death threats, harassment, uh, and just it was a very sort of nasty uh, toxic response you know to to this and again it just goes to show how um, how deeply sort of ingrained this is and how much um, any criticism especially from the outside of, of racism um, about racism and intolerance flies against this face of the Netherlands being a tolerant country right
0: yeah I, it reminds me honestly of my hometown Cleveland Indians and people refusing to accept the change of chief wahoo the Grinning red mascot of the team, and you know they say, "Oh, yeah, we're going to phase it out. We're going to change the logo to make it a C, and we're not going to." But it's still in the cap. It's still in the uniform. It's still a symbol of the team. And I, I I don't understand how they you know they they see that as some kind of way to you know appease the the protest when it's like you know we're asking for you to get rid of it.
1: Um, the mayor of Amsterdam this year has said, you know, all right, we're willing to gradually phase it out. So this year they the costumes didn't include the gold earrings, right? And they say eventually we'll get to a point where Zwart-Pied is looks like he fell through a chimney. So it's just soot. But it's still this thing of like, well, we can't change it because – children won't like it or it's too ingrained, right? Um, there's a recognition, I feel, in, in in the U.S. and in other countries that, like, okay, you know, we're trying to move forward from this and, yes, please don't dress up in blackface, whereas in the Netherlands it's perfectly okay and maybe part of it, it has to do with the fact that it's a small country and Dutch is not, you know, it's not quite a... <laughs> nowhere near a universal language, so what happens there perhaps doesn't make it out into the, the international community as easily... But there's just this sense that they're holding on very proudly, you know, to this. And I think perhaps, I hope, you know, over time that, that future generations will look back and see, oh, gosh, remember when people used to dress up as Edward Pete?
0: Karen, I really do appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, look forward to more of your reporting.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Indeed. That was Karen Atia, Deputy Opinions Editor at The Washington Post. Okay, now for the highlights reel. In the past six months, we've talked to more than 30 guests. We're going to play some of our favorite moments. We'll start with our very first Intersection episode. This spring, the Supreme Court made history by legalizing marriage for gay and lesbian couples. To discuss that, we welcomed author and professor Linda Villarosa and her 19-year-old daughter, Callie, to talk about their beautiful, non-traditional family and what marriage equality means to them. Here's Linda. I'll let her introduce her daughter.
2: Callie is a 19-year-old college student. She has grown up, grew up in Brooklyn with, let's see, lots of mommies, a father who lives in Peru but comes to visit a lot, a grandmother, and a whole network of loving people who raised her and her brother.
3: The thing is, I've grown up with a gay family, with gay parents. Like Almost all my parents' friends are lesbians. And so I've just grown up in the LGBT community. Like when someone asks me about my family, I immediately say, I have two moms. And then I go in, yes, they're gay. And then I have to go in and break down every single thing. Like who's related to who? Who's my biological parent? Like who are the girlfriends? Like everything. But it's always something I'm willing to do.
2: There was a point in elementary school where there was a, some kids making fun of her for having an LGBT family. And because we live in a progressive part of Brooklyn, the school just shut that down right away. But it was really painful and kind of made us take a step back and remind the kids that though we live in New York City, we're very fortunate for that. That, you know, other places in the country and especially in the world, not everyone has that same privilege and there's not the same acceptance.
3: Yeah, but even so, it wasn't just the school that responded to like this bullying event. It was also my friends and my friends themselves had gay parents. And so it was like, OK, I have this whole community behind me. But it it also was eye opening because I was like, wait, someone's questioning my family. Like, I don't see a problem. And so that was the first time when I was like, oh, wait, my family isn't normal everywhere in the world or like they aren't recognized as being a normal family.
0: But that's okay, right?
3: Oh, yeah, whatever. Like, sorry. (laughs) This is my family. (laughs) Like, if you have a problem, like, I'm sorry. This is the way I lived. And I'm pretty happy the way I've turned out and the way I'm raised and everything.
0: This August, we marked the 10-year anniversary of Hurricane Katrina in our third episode. Derek Evans came on the show to remember the people and communities lost and forever changed and examine how race plays into environmental policy. Derek shared the story of going back to his hometown, Turkey Creek, Mississippi, during Katrina to rescue his elderly mother from her home. His description hits all of your senses. Take a
4: listen. There was no news coming out of Mississippi on media, and I wasn't hearing very encouraging news from the relatives that I was able to reach in other states around the country. And it was getting more and more ominous. And so, uh, you know, I just had to go. A couple days later, we were riding under I-10 and into the vicinity of Turkey Creek. What'd you find when you got there? Oh, like a bomb scene, like a a Baghdad war zone, uh, Dresden after the bombings, you know. There was debris everywhere, natural debris or so-called green debris, household debris, pieces of roofs, entire roofs, and everything was singed. The leaves on the trees... The grass, everything was dry. I don't think it rained again for weeks. It just looked like a torch had passed through. Everything was wind-burnt. We'd seen the tops of huge native long-needle pines and other pines just snapped off like number two pencils. And then the smell. I never smelled anything like that, I don't ever want to smell anything like it again. It was a combination of... It was like something was dead, something was burnt, something was bloated. It just was horrible. Horrible.
0: We also took a look at football and how we balance a love for America's game with how it shapes our ideas of masculinity. Wade Davis retired from the National Football League in 2012. That's when he revealed publicly that he is gay. Since then, he's become a leading activist on eradicating homophobia in the NFL and other
5: sports. Here's a little bit of what he told me in episode four when you're finally out there there is a release I mean there is a release but but the idea of having to as Khalifa said, um, push through this idea that being gay makes makes you less than makes you weaker is a mental burden right right that you're not having to to, to hyper masculinize yourself you know like when I was in the closet, I knew that there were certain things that I had to do to show up in the world as a stereotypically masculine man right and even if you're out, and you still, there's still currency in being perceived as being able to enter and exit spaces without anyone ever assuming that that you're gay, right? So um, so I think that that the cost that Michael Sam paid when he was in high school and before he came out in college, those are some internal injuries that you have to do some excavation work to start to love yourself that, that, that's not taught to you or anyone else. So when you talk about performing masculinity in the locker room, what, do you, what kind of things did you have to do in order to make sure you presented yourself, so to speak, as heterosexual? I think masculinity is a performance i don't think that there is a definition of it right um and i think that all men know what that looked like you know from for myself like i knew i had to have a girlfriend I knew I had to be able to talk about women in a certain way because there is no currency in not actually doing that. I mean, there is value in in your teammates thinking that you're having sex with women, that you can dominate a woman's body. Also, that you can dominate on the football field. All of these things kind of raise you up on this hierarchy of manhood that that all men inherently know exists. You know, if you're 17 years old, 18 years old, and you haven't had a girlfriend, the whispers start.
0: The 2016 presidential election dominates the news cycle, for better or for worse. As part of our series looking at the candidates through the lens of identity, we talked to women's rights activist Andrea Pino of End Rape on Campus, who you may recognize if you've seen The Hunting Ground, the acclaimed documentary about sexual assault at colleges and universities. Drea is Cuban-American, and she told me about growing up in Miami's Cuban community and the privilege that came with that.
6: You know, for me, growing up in a predominantly Cuban community in South Miami, everyone was Republican. I mean, the idea of being a Democrat, being out as a Democrat, it literally it was a coming out process. And you know, my grandfather was seen as as being a socialist because, you know, he favored Gore, he favored Kerry, he favored Obama before, you know, he really became such a popular candidate and it was difficult for our family because it really did seem as if Democrats could never really have a strong voice among Cuban-Americans. And and I think Cubans should be separate from the rest of the Hispanic population just because, I mean, they do tend to vote Republican. And I mean, things are changing now. I'm seeing my friends that are seeming to think more democrat But, you know, Cubans have a privilege in this country, um, many of which don't have to deal with the conversation of immigration. They don't have to really deal with racial profiling in many cases because many are light skinned. They're white. And in in many ways, they are the new white. They're they're becoming a model minority. And, And folks like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio can pass as white, can can really play in the big leagues like other Republicans. And I think, you know, folks in Miami, you know, especially are really starting to think more critically of the Republican Party. But I think we really are a long ways to go to really mobilize folks, especially in the Cuban community, to look at voting more critically.
0: This year has seen many milestones for transgender awareness in America. There's Caitlyn Jenner, of course, and the hit show Transparent. Journalist and TV show host Janet Mock is proudly transgender, but that's not the only way she identifies. Here, she tells me what it's like when one identity starts to outweigh the others in the public eye.
7: I always struggle with the sense of having to be a one person with one experience that has to then go out and speak on behalf of an entire, like, diverse, complicated, nuanced, intersectional community of people. Um, so that's tough for me, always, because I don't think that anyone can do that well. <laughs> I think you, if you think you're doing it well, you're definitely failing a lot of people. And then on the other hand, I think just for me personally, my transness to be the focus and center of who I am feels reductive, I guess, and really basic because I just think that You know, people don't talk about my blackness as much as they talk about me being trans, right? People don't talk about the fact that I'm native as much as they talk about me being trans. If we're just talking about the pieces of myself that are just talking about like my ethnic and racial identity, right? And then you go into like the work that I do being a writer and a someone who produces and hosts my own TV show is that I don't get asked those same questions of how did you frame these conversations and how did you decide to do the editorial lineup of what you do every week and choose the experts that you have on your couch and blah, blah, blah. I'm always asked about. Uh, my experiences and my identity. And so, yeah, part of it feels as if there's like a a weird tokenization that goes on because right now we're dealing in trending commodification of trans bodies and experiences within mm-hmm. media and culture. And I understand the importance of having that be sp- the spotlight right now. But as someone who's an individual trying to be known for my work, it becomes, it's it's a struggle.
0: In November, we marked the one-year anniversary of the death of Tamir Rice a 12-year-old black boy from my hometown, Cleveland, Ohio. Tamir, as you may know, was shot and killed by a white police officer as he was playing with an airsoft pellet gun outside a rec center on Cleveland's west side. I talked to Tamir's grandmother about him, and though it was clearly hard for her, she was gracious enough to tell us all the things that made him a great boy.
8: He liked it to play basketball. He liked it to play them games. He liked it to go swimming. He liked football. He liked the, mostly everything that a child can do. He liked to ride or bike. He was just a joyful
0: child. On the 22nd and 23rd, what will you be doing those days? Are you doing anything special to to mark that, uh, to mark that incident? I'll
8: be on my hands
0: and knees praying. Praying for what?
8: Justice for my grandson.
0: And what's that look like to you?
8: I was raised in politics. My mother was Councilwoman Mildred Brewer. So I know how the politics go. I know how one hand washes the other. I know how prejudiced they are because my mother taught me. And it's just a shame. That we can't get no justice for my grandson. I've been voting since I was 18. I don't see no use of voting no more. Because the law is not for the black folks, it's for the white people. But the law going to work it out.
0: Last but not least, I want to close with a clip from my friend, mentor, and former boss, Melissa Harris Perry. Melissa has a whole smorgasbord of ways that she could identify. Political scientist, mother, MSNBC host, black, biracial, etc. I asked her which two identities do you see most in conflict with one another. The question kind of stumped her until she had an epiphany. Take a listen. Oh, most in conflict.
9: Hmm. That's a tough one. You know, I um you know, there are roles I see in conflict with each other just because of of time. So, I, you know, definitely I think being a parent, being a mom is in conflict with basically every one of my professional roles. This is the, you know, the single biggest story I think that, that um, the professional women who also have young children talk about. But in terms of identities, you know, it's interesting because I don't actually see any of them as being in conflict. Maybe I am so wholly bought into my intersectional identity. Oh, actually, hold on. Whoops. There is one okay Yes. So my identity as feminist um, and particularly my very, very strong sense that my work in all spaces, I- including in my personal life, is guided by feminism on the one hand. And then my kind of hip hop hedonism on the other, which is to say, I certainly would never want anyone to put a um, secret microphone or camera in my car and listen to the music that I listen to, because it is not by any stretch of the imagination feminist. Uh, and I, I suspect that I there was a time when I tried to reconcile those things. And now I just see them as kind of separate. Like, I just choose to, in fact, ingest some pretty horrifying stuff at the same time that I see myself as an intersectional black feminist.
0: Hotline bling. Ah! Alrighty, nerds, that's all we got. I hope you all have a wonderful holiday season and new year with the people that you love. If you have some spare time over the holiday season, think about starting a conversation with a loved one about intersectionality and identity. Ask questions and listen. I bet you'll be surprised by the stories that you hear. If you do, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us anytime at podcast at newrepublic.com. Intersection is produced by Michaela Lafraque and we record at Argo Studios here in New York, supervised by Paul Ruest. Our theme music is by Julian Villard. Find us on Twitter at Intersection TNR and on Facebook. I'm on Twitter at Jamil Smith. We'll return next year with a very special episode on body image, right on time for your New Year's resolutions. Listen for that episode in January. Until then, have a wonderful and safe New Year's, and we'll see you in 2016.